Jesus said the kingdom of God is this, is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises day and night. Seed sprouts and grows. He doesn't know how. The earth produces by itself. First the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. Sounds like Thanksgiving. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. Jesus said, with what can we compare the kingdom of God or what parable shall we use for it? It's like a grain of mustard seed. When I was a kid, I was confused. I remember going by in the grocery store in the spice aisle and there's, uh, there's a jar with mustard seed and they looked like little pellets. You could shoot a BB gun with them. And then somebody said, oh, no, 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 no. See, that's, that's a variety of species from the Western Hemisphere. Let me show you what mustard seed looks like from Israel. And they handed me a packet, and it was fine dust. I mean, you could not even make out a single seed. It was just the smallest stuff I've ever seen. That's what Jesus meant when he said, the kingdom of God is like a grain of mustard seed, which when sown on the ground is the smallest of all the seeds on earth. Yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. Life is filled with mysteries, would you agree? Some mysteries are mysteries because um, I just don't understand at all. It's kind of like listening to somebody speak a foreign language. These people are going back and forth, they're just communicating with each other, and I'm going, I've got the foggiest idea what they're talking about. It's a mystery. I just don't understand. Other things are mysteries, not because I necessarily don't understand, but no matter how hard somebody has tried to teach me, I don't get it. I've not had that that educational moment where teachers know what I'm talking about. Teachers can be talking to their students and students. And then they keep talking and they keep talking and they explain that you add another sentence and all of a sudden the kid's face goes. It's what the educational uh, uh, expert or the psychologist calls the aha moment. Aha! I got it! I had a Korean professor in college who called it the aso moment. Aso, I get it. Some things are mysteries because literally nobody understands. Nobody. Nobody gets it. The mystery Jesus addresses in our text is how does God's kingdom grow? Well, it's an easy enough question. How does God's kingdom grow? Ultimately, the answer is, I don't know. As a pastor, I've been shocked because there were some people who I thought would never come to faith. I met this person and I thought, impossible, ain't gonna happen. And that person came to faith and became a loyal, faithful follower of Jesus. And I went, oh. And other people who I was convinced were a shoo-in, a lock, this person's gonna be a great Christian, remain cold to the gospel, cold to Christ. Didn't happen. Not at all. Some days I stepped into the pulpit. By the way, 45 years ago today I was ordained. So I've stepped into the pulpit many, many, many times. 
I stepped into the pulpit and I thought I had a message that was a home run. This was a grand slam. When I get done and people on that way out are going to go, wow, that was really great, Pastor. Invariably, nobody said a word. <laughs> I'm serious. And other times when I got done with the sermon and I thought, whew, that was a weak pop-up. If not an outright strikeout. And on the way out, those were the Sundays when people would stop me and say, thank you for that wonderful moving message. You must have preached that message just for me. Of course I'd say, of course I did, you know. It's very humbling. It really is. And I think you probably know what I mean as a Christian that you are. It's very humbling. Whoops. How does God's kingdom grow? I don't know. I'd like to think I'm the one who makes it grow, and that's not the way it is. Neither you or I can make it happen. Listen again to the words of Jesus. He says, it's like the man who sows his seed. Night and day, whether he sleeps or gets up, the seed sprouts and grows, though he does not know how. Farmers can till the soil, they can buy and plant seed, they can buy the best, most expensive seed, but ask any farmer, they'll be the first to tell you, they can't make anything grow. It's beyond their ability. Just so all we can do is sow the seed of God's word and hope it takes root. That's all I can say. But it will grow. Some of it's going to grow. It will grow because God wants it to grow. Would we expect anything else from the one who says, I would have all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth? Or from him who so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him, whoever, that's a big word, it doesn't get any bigger than whoever, whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. That's God's passion. That's God's will. That's what he wants to do. In the book of Acts, we read again and again of how the church was growing. The disciples had seen the risen Lord. They went and they told people that the one who was crucified was alive, and the church was growing. It was almost like a refrain. Luke says, daily the Lord was adding to the number those who were being saved. It was adding those who were being saved. Well, what about those who weren't being saved? That's what I want to always ask. Why didn't everybody hear the same message and come to faith in it? Some people listen and they turn a deaf ear. Why? I don't know. Our Lutheran confessions say that is one of the greatest mysteries in all of theology. Why some people can hear the message of God and it warms their hearts and they become a Christian. Other people hear the message of God, their hearts freeze over and they reject it like, I'm not interested in that at all. They can hear the same person, same message, same occasion. It leaves them completely different. I'll say it again. The kingdom will grow. I don't know how. That's my first answer. I really don't know how. Second answer is, well, it sounds like a paradox. Well, I can tell you how. The Holy Spirit makes it grow by the power of the Holy Spirit. 
which is why we call him in the Nicene Creed the Lord and Giver of Life. We're not talking about physical life, that's first article stuff, that's God the Father. We're talking about bringing somebody to faith, that's God the Holy Spirit, that's third article, and that's his job. All we can do is share God's love in Christ as we sow the seed of his word. And we say, Holy Spirit, if you can use that, please do. I can't make it take root. I can't bring this person to faith. I've never converted anybody, and I'm never going to. It's, beyond, it's not just beyond my pay grade. It's beyond my ability. I can't do that. Only the Spirit can grow faith in the heart to believe that word and trust in Jesus. The way the Spirit does that is through the word of God himself, itself. Whether it's the word written in a book, we call it the Bible, or whether it's the word that somebody is proclaiming to you, like I'm trying to do right now, or you try to do when you're talking over the backyard fence or over a cup of coffee with a friend, neighbor, relative, somebody. When you speak that word, the Holy Spirit is there trying to use that word to work faith into that person's heart. The word does it. You don't do it, the word does it. I love the quote from Luther. He says, you know, the Reformation worked even though Amsdorf, that was one of his pastor buddies, and Melanchthon and I sat in Wittenberg, we drank Wittenberger beer, and God's word did everything else. He says, don't credit me with what happened in the Reformation because I wasn't the one who did it. Working through these means of grace of word and sacrament, the Spirit works the miracle of faith into the hearts of those who believe. That's it. Whenever I, I'm ready to preach, all I can say is the same thing. God, I can't get anybody to listen to me, let alone believe me. So if you can use whatever I'm going to share with these people today in order to either work faith into their heart or strengthen faith in their heart, please do. I can't. I can't. The word works. Isaiah said, as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return to it without watering the earth. Wasn't it wonderful we got rain yesterday? I got rain also Friday in Batavia. We got it two days in a row. Oh, man. As the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return to it without watering the earth and making it bud and flourish so that it yields seed for the sower and bread for the eater, so it is with my word that goes forth from my mouth. That's God's promise. It will not return to me empty, but it will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. How does God's kingdom grow? First answer is I really don't know. Second is, well, it's by the power of the Holy Spirit. And the third answer, also provided by our text is, and this sounds paradoxical, it does it all on its own. Jesus taught, listen to his words again, night and day, whether the farmer sleeps or gets up, the seed sprouts and grows, though he does not know how, all by itself. All by itself. The soil produces the grain. The Greek word for all by itself is automata. Automatic. It's automatically so. It happens all on its own. Good Lutheran question to ask is, what does that mean? You mean there's nothing I can do? It's only the word? 
I will remind you, Luther did a lot of things during the Reformation. When he said it's the word that did it, he was being honest, but it's paradoxical because the word depended upon him. On its own or all by itself doesn't mean there's nothing for us to do in order to, for God's kingdom to grow. Isn't that weird? I can't make God's kingdom grow, but God's kingdom can't grow without me or without you. The farmer can't make his seed grow, but the farmer still has to plant the seed, till the soil. And if God blesses with a crop, you just can't sit back in your lazy boy and say, okay, crop, come on in. You got to get out there with a the combine and bring the harvest in. You got a job to do. You didn't make it grow, but you've got a job to do. And as Jesus' parable at the beginning of chapter 4 indicates, the best place to throw the seed, to scatter the seed, to plant the seed is on soft soil, not on thorny or rocky or weedy or shallow soil. It won't work there. And if God has blessed that crop, the, har the farmer has to bring in the harvest. Just so through God... Though God is the only one to make it grow, there's lots for us to do. We sing it in an old hymn. Let none hear you idly saying, there is nothing I can do while the souls of men are dying and the master calls for you. There's plenty for you and for me to do. Our job is to proclaim the gospel so that people will be connected to Jesus. He works through his word and he's put that word in your mouth. Speak it so that the Spirit can use it and bring somebody connecting them that, to Jesus. That's how it works. That's why Luther translated the Bible. You have to speak it in a language that they understand. Speaking the gospel to somebody from Korea in German isn't going to help, or in English isn't going to help, unless they understand German or English. That's why Wycliffe and Tyndale translated the Bible into English. That's why John Hus translated the Bible into Czechoslovakian. That's why Luther translated the Bible into German. Go down the history of biblical translation. There were all kinds of people who did that so that people could read God's word in their own mother tongue and understand it. You can't talk to a kindergartner or a first grader about the things about God, faith, Jesus the way you would with somebody who is a college graduate. Little children have a hard time understanding abstract concepts. We all do. Things like justification, sanctification, real presence of Christ's body and blood and Holy Communion. Really? Yeah, really. And so you have to tailor your language so that people that you're talking to are going to be able to understand it. Otherwise, you're not helping. It's not going to do any good. There's much that we can do to connect people to Jesus. There was a comprehensive multi-denomination, all stripes and varieties of Christianity, with a study of a thousand Christian churches, all of which were vibrant and growing, growing rapidly, in 32 countries on six continents. The study occurred way back in 1994 to 96. The results are a book called Natural Church Development. I've read it, studied it, we used it in my former parish to, to think about what's going on with the kingdom here in our midst. 
Are there any qualities or characteristics among these thousand thriving, growing congregations that we can learn lessons from? Church growth experts call these the growth automatisms. There were eight. Leadership that draws members into ministries and empowers them to do them. Because the ministry is not mine, it's ours. Jesus gave the office of the keys to the whole church, not just the pastors. How do we get all of us involved in the life and the ministry of the church? Secondly, members who have identified and then used their spiritual gifts in appropriate ministries. You're not good at everything. Neither am I. What are you good at? How can you use that talent, that ability, and parlay it into something that's going to help this congregation, help the kingdom of God? Thirdly, members with passionate spirituality who are on fire, living their faith with enthusiasm. You know, I just when I say that, you can think of a Christian, you know who that person is. Somebody who really takes that faith seriously. And it becomes infectious. That's another characteristic of growing churches. Fourth, church structures that are evaluated by whether or not they serve the growth of the church. Are we really positioning ourselves as a congregation that we really want to grow? You know the mission statement of St. Paul Church, don't you? Don't you? Disciples who make disciples. That's what we're supposed to we said that's what we're about. Disciples, we are disciples, we're studying, we're learning, we're improving, we're strengthening, we're stretching ourselves with the goal of making somebody else a disciple. I can't do that, God. He says, I know you can't, but I can't do it without you. You need to be my hands, my feet, my mouth. I will make disciples of people, but I do it through you. Five, inspiring worship services that are a highlight of the week for most of the members. By the way, that has absolutely nothing to do with whether or not the service is traditional or contemporary. Because I can think of all kinds of traditional congregations that are thriving, all kinds of uh, contemporary congregations that are thriving, just like I can think of all kinds of traditional congregations that are wilting on the vine and contemporary services that are doing the same. What excites you about worship? Why are you here? (laughs) You came back. Thank you. (laughs) But why are you here? What makes this hour so special in your week? Small groups, number six, small groups where members know the loving and healing power of Christian fellowship. Especially as congregations get bigger and bigger, it's important that people can relate to a small group of people that they can count on, they can pray with, they can study with, they can encourage each other. It becomes their small family group. So that there is an intimacy and, a person, and something personal about that relationship with Christ through this small group of people. It's very important. Seven, evangelism that involves nearly all the members that respond to non-member needs. Again, we're not in business for us. If we are, we're a country club. You know, country club, you pay your dues, you get to play in the course, you get to swim in the pool, you get to use the tennis courts, you can eat in the, in the dining room because you paid your dues. That's not what the church is. The church exists for all those people out there who aren't in here yet. 
It's not an exclusive group. It's God's group. In business, to reach out, to bring more and more and more and more and more and more and more in. Eight, loving relationships and fellowship where the love of Christ permeates almost all activities. Not too many weeks ago, I, I remember sharing in a sermon, I, I, I have visited so many churches, there are times I walk through the doors and you can feel the love of Christ in that place. Nobody has said a word, nobody has greeted me. I feel the love of Christ in that place. I don't know how, I do, and I'm never disappointed. It's a wonderful place filled with God's people, on fire with the Lord. And I can walk through other sets of doors and I feel a chill. I don't know why. And invariably, on that occasion, in that place, nobody says a word to me. Kind of like, who are you? And why are you here? <laughs> Hello, I'm here because of Jesus Christ. In the study, when all eight of these characteristics were found in a church, that church was always growing and growing rapidly. Don't have to have all eight, but the more you have, the stronger your church is. It's just the way God wired churches. It happens all by itself. It's automatic. You remember the old nursery rhyme, Mary, Mary, quite contrary, how does your garden grow? With silver bells and cockle shells and pretty maids all in a row. Well, that's fine for Mary in her garden, but that's not the way God's church grows. It grows by the proclamation of his word. It grows by the power of the Holy Spirit. And it grows because of you and me. That's not right. It grows only by God. Yeah, and he says, that's right, but I've chosen to use you to make it happen. It would behoove us to examine our health according to those eight characteristics of natural church development. I, I remember having a wonderful conversation years ago with former synodical president Jerry Kieschnick. Jerry and I had an instant bond. I discovered, he discovered, both of our fathers were butchers. So we had all kinds of things to talk about. But in the course of that, he told me a story. He said he was with a group of children not too long before that. And he asked this group of boys and girls some questions about their church, the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. He said, anybody know how many churches we have in our church? Anybody here know? One little boy raised his hand. He said, about 6,000. He said, wow, you're right. It's about 6,000. He said, and how many baptized members do we have? Anybody here know? About two and a half million. But a little girl raised her hand. That was not her answer. But Jerry said, I'll never forget her answer. I really loved her answer. It's the best answer ever. Her answer was, not nearly enough. <laughs> Out of the mouth of babes. I think God would look down upon this congregation and say, hey, you're great people. You're not nearly enough. He'd say about our church. He'd say about the church Catholic, the church universal. Great people, not nearly enough. No, 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 no. You see, my goal is not for you to be saved. My goal is for the world to be saved, and I've chosen to do it through you. I said, I thought you did it through Jesus. Well, of course I did. But I've given the message about Jesus to you. I've entrusted it to you. That stewardship. What are you doing with that message? 
This church is not nearly big enough. Wouldn't you agree? And if that is true, what are we going to do so that we stop thinking first and foremost about ourselves and about all those folks out there who aren't in here yet? That's why we're here. We just are reopening. Isn't it wonderful to be able to come back? So for the last year and a half, much of that time, you couldn't come. I couldn't come. Nobody could come. It was all remote. And then it started slowly reopening, and it's been reopening a little more, a little more, a little more. Now it's open. So you can come back. That means you can also invite somebody else to come with you. Again, I'll say it. You're here. Why did you come today? Why was it important for you to be here? You left your home. You got in a car. You drove here so you could experience whatever we're experiencing here right now. Why? And is it important enough for you to share it with somebody else? And if it isn't, tell me why. Why is that not important? It's not my question so much as it is our Lord Jesus who has said, I will make you to be fishers of men. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen.